As you may guess by the hymns we've sung today, we've come in our study of Matthew to the much-anticipated and predicted moment of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm reading in Matthew 27 this morning, and I invite you to follow this very sacred text, Matthew 27, beginning at 45 today, as we look at the hour of Christ's death and some of the dramatic things, particularly, that occurred surrounding that event. Believe it or not, we only have two more weeks to look at this long journey we've had in this gospel, the longest of the gospels. Listen carefully to God's Word this morning as I read Matthew 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those standing there heard this, and they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. And this is the Word of God. It's pretty hard to think about Christmas at this point in the year, six months away from that blessed time of year. But what I'd ask you to think about today when we do celebrate Christmas is the way in which that event, that festival of Christ coming into the world, being born in Bethlehem, brings around it all sorts of related miracles that we speak about a cluster of miracles. The conception of Jesus in the womb of a virgin, of course. The mysterious appearance of the star of Bethlehem. Various angelic visitations giving information, and especially that splendid midnight announcement to the shepherds out in their field. The magi who came from a far-off land seeking a Jewish king. Joseph guided by dreams. All these miracles that sort of gather in around Christmas like a collage of miraculous 
power demonstrated by God. Well, I want you today to think about the fact that as Jesus died, we have much the same thing. His death on the cross has surrounding it and kind of packed in against it a number of miracles, wondrous events that God brought to pass. And that today we want to look at these. This unnatural darkness from 12 noon to 3 p.m. The amazing sound of the Son of God calling out to His Father because He was forsaken. The inner curtain of the temple being torn in two. An earthquake with exquisite exact timing, the gospel claims, rattling the whole vicinity, and then believers being seen resurrected, people who were known to have died being seen alive after the resurrection of Christ. All these lesser miracles, you would say, there's a whole crowd of them around the cross and coming even before the great miracle, of course, of Jesus' own resurrection. Last week, we spoke about the cross as an object of shame and scorn, and we need to see that dimension of it. We considered carefully Jesus as our substitute, receiving a blast of human antagonism and enmity that really was directed against God. In a sense, we thought about how low he went in the cross. Today, I would reverse that theme in a way to say, We want to see the death of Jesus as a glorious thing, as a grand achievement by God. Paul, writing in Galatians 6, would say he never wanted to boast about anything unless it would be something that people thought was a very unlikely event to boast in, and that was the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should glory in anything Save in the cross, Paul said. So beyond thinking of the cross just as an experience of shame and and lowliness and pain, there's also a sense in which we must frame the death of Jesus in a manner that considers it as grandeur and what the Bible only calls glory, the glory of a great success and a great achievement. Not so long ago, I saw an engagement ring worn by a young woman. It was very unusual. It was not the usual single diamond. And it was also, I could realize, looking at it, not the sort of engagement ring that poor preachers give to their intended brides. It featured a star sapphire in the middle, beautiful oval-shaped sapphire, completely surrounded by an oval ring of tiny diamonds, probably about 10 smaller diamonds around it. And this was shown to me, and of course the lady wearing it was, was very proud of it and what it represented. And I was noticing how, of course, the sapphire was very beautiful as the center stone, but, but yet I realized that without the, the encircling smaller diamonds, it would not be nearly the grand thing that it appeared to be. Well, I thought about that ring today as I approached this grand text that we could look at so many different ways, and every sentence, every word here has meaning. There are many things we could emphasize. But I wanted to 
show you by way of emphasis the smaller stones, the smaller wonders that encircle the central wonder of the death of Christ. For there are a number of miracles, works of God, reported in this text that I read, short as it is. A heavy darkness for Jesus the outcast. A torn curtain showing us a new way of access to God. Broken tombs that lead to risen saints. And the birth cry of at least one very unlikely convert. Charles Spurgeon, the British preacher, said, The death of our Lord Jesus Christ was fitly surrounded by miracles, yet was itself so much greater a wonder than all the others that it far exceeds them in the way that the sun outshines the planets surrounding it. These subordinate incidents are included here in Scripture, not just because they're curiosities or or minutiae, you know, little details to be brought in. They have meaning. They're put here for a purpose in the revelation of God. And they speak about what the cross meant and what Jesus was doing. So I want you to think of approaching this great and wonderful, terrible but wonderful event of the death of Jesus in terms of these surrounding miracles, four of them this morning. First of all, verses 45 to 48 tells us about heavy darkness for Jesus the outcast. It was very bizarre. The sixth hour to the ninth hour means noon to 3 p.m. on our clock. Jesus was hanging there then for at least three hours, probably sometime before that. But during those three hours, the report of the Gospels is there was an unnatural darkness that came over the land. How far it extended, no one can say exactly, but certainly for a far distance. Now, some would say, well, there must have been an eclipse. The interesting thing is there's a good reason we know that cannot be the explanation. Because this was the Passover season, and Passover as a Jewish festival was always celebrated at a full moon. Ask any astronomer. They will tell you you cannot have an eclipse of the sun when the moon is full. Some would say, well, maybe it was some kind of a desert sandstorm. But I would say all searches for explanations are really vain. We don't know the cause of this, and we don't need to know. It's very plain that God caused a three-hour darkness in the middle of a day. Not just the darkness we get. It's a little bit dim today and gloomy, but not just the darkness we get with a heavy cloud, you know, and a storm coming. Worse than that, it was a heavy darkness that covered the land. We're reminded at creation in Genesis, God, the Creator, penetrated the chaos and brought light Let there be light was one of the great first things he did. When Christ was born at Bethlehem, a night sky was lightened up by angels who surrounded shepherds, and they glimpsed things that were fearful to them, the light of heaven, the glory of heaven. And now, as we come to this, the death of Jesus, instead of darkness being lighted, the light becomes darkness. Everything's reversed. Noonday 
turns into gloom. The Old Testament gives us some hints about meaning for this. The prophet Amos in chapter 8, verse 9, spoke about the wrath of God. And in giving the exhibition, prophesying the exhibition of that wrath, the Lord speaks through the prophet and says, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth at broad daylight. Perhaps a clear indicator is what happened in Exodus chapter 10 when the plague, Moses, by the power of God, commanded plagues on Egypt when Pharaoh would not let the people go. And the last and dramatic plague, of course, was the death of the firstborn of Egypt. But the one right before that was darkness. And Exodus 10.21 tells us, God gave a plague of darkness that lasted three days, and it was called there, quote, a darkness which could be felt. You sense that that's something more than a little bit of a gray sky. Now, if we put together these strands of Old Testament meaning, I think we would want to say that the darkness at Calvary has something to do with judgment, with wrath from God. And it may have something to do with mystery, with the divine enigma here, which is unfolding as something that human beings cannot fully understand and and is not even entirely open to our sight to be able to see what's going on. Almost as if a groaning, mourning creation had to close the window blinds and make the area dark to surround this Son of God, who is lifted up here in death. You can try to imagine what it would have been like. Some farmer plowing the field with his animal, his donkey, or his ox, and all of a sudden it it grows very dark, and the animal stops, and the farmer gazes and, and does not know what to think. Little children running to their mothers with this thick darkness coming at midday and lasting three hours. We can only say that many of the deep things of God are obscured from the eyes of human beings. Remember the giving of the law through Moses at Mount Sinai? The people were told to stay back, don't even come onto the foothill, the, the base of the mountain, and, and the, the scene at the mountain itself as Moses went up was all full of smoke and blackness as the Lord was revealing himself and people were not to see the exact dealings that he had with Moses. There's mystery here in this darkness, mystery of of this unbelievable transaction of the Son of God combating the powers of darkness and Satan himself and being made the curse of God. When he thought about it, Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, penned a line that speaks well of it. He said, well might the Son in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. I think that darkness, in a way, was given as a backdrop. A backdrop for the most amazing thing about the cross, the most amazing word. You know, we often speak of the seven words of Christ from the cross. You have to put all the Gospels together to get all seven of them. They're not in one sequence in one Gospel. 
But the most awesome of the words to me has always been the one reported here and in other Gospels. That at the hour as he was approaching his death, he cried out, and why exactly the Scripture gives it in the Aramaic language that Jesus spoke, his native everyday language, I think, was to remind us that he was a man, that he spoke like we spoke, and that he now was amazingly cut off from his father. Think about that on Father's Day. The greatest father-son relationship that ever existed had to be cut off. And Jesus said, my God, the only time he prayed that he did not say father, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are those who say, well, he just felt forsaken. He wasn't. I think with all my being, that is absolutely wrong. He was forsaken. He had to be forsaken. The Scripture would have us understand Habakkuk 1.13 that the eyes of God are too pure to look upon sin. A modern hymn says, The Father turned His face away. From Jesus the sin bearer. Here he was in no man's land. He was an outcast, an untouchable. No man stood beside him. Women sympathized with him from a distance. But his father had to look away. God the Father had to look away from his son. I'm so often asked when we recite the Apostles' Creed, people say, well, tell me what this phrase means, he descended into hell. There are some who have some idea that Jesus went to an underworld place or something while he was in the grave and that that's what the creed is talking about. I will agree with John Calvin and many great thinkers who say, here is what it means right here. He went to hell on the cross. This was his hell. The Father turned away. Hebrews 13 says Christ was crucified outside the camp, outside the city gate. The Scripture says, Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. This is it. The ultimate outcast. The ultimate mystery. God forsaken by God. The fellowship of father and son broken by necessity, the spiritual lifeline of Jesus Christ severed for that hour. Who can comprehend this? No wonder it was dark. When the face of God cannot look on you, I assure you all the lights have gone out. This is heavy darkness for the outcast of heaven. But then in the second place, after that darkness comes a second miracle, and it is a great one. Matthew specifies in verse 51 that these next two miracles happen, in his words, at the moment. You you had to hear somebody, I mean, you couldn't be standing at Calvary and see this. You had to put together testimony and say, well, when did that happen? Oh, well, it happened right about 3 o'clock in the, really? 3 o'clock? 
That's when he died. And they put this together. This second miracle of a torn curtain opening new access to God. Verse 51 says, Jesus drew his last breath, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, we don't have a tall enough room here. I don't know what the height of this ceiling is right offhand. I make a rough guess. But the curtain of this temple was 60 feet high, a lot higher than the ceiling of this room, and 30 feet wide. It was made of linen. It was interwoven of several layers and blue in color. And this curtain divided the innermost room of the Jerusalem temple, the room in which the Ark of the Covenant was, a room visited only once a year by a high priest who came with fear and trembling, with the blood of atonement sprinkled on him as he came to seek God's pardon for the sins of the people in the greatest act of worship that Israel had. And I remind you, as I have before, they tied, I always loved this little detail, they tied a rope around his ankle because nobody was going in there to get him if God would kill him. And so that was the curtain that we're talking about here. It was a curtain not seen by all the crowds, but it was seen by priests who, who entered the secondary room just outside it. And, and if this had not happened, you can make sure it would have been refuted. I didn't notice for a long time in studying the gospel, but how precise and wonderful the Word of God is. Notice how the curtain was torn. It says, from top to bottom. Suppose a group of strong men somehow decided to tear that curtain, and they got a sharp knife, and, you know, you get cloth started, and maybe you can tear it. This is pretty heavy cloth. But you'd get a couple men on one side and a couple men on the other at the bottom, and you'd tear with all your might, and maybe you could tear it. How do men tear it, a 60-foot curtain, from the top to the bottom? This was an act of God. It was an act of God saying that this barrier curtain in front of the innermost room where the Ark of the Covenant was, symbolizing the dwelling of God, the presence of God in the center of his nation, his covenant people, was now no longer divided by a barrier. You see, this, this was the place where nobody dared to enter casually. You didn't go, you know, say, could I have a tour of the Holy of Holies? Forget it. You didn't even get close. You didn't even get to the room just outside it. The psalmist asked the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall dwell in his holy place? And the answer was, only that one whose sins have been atoned for in the way that God provides. For centuries, that finely woven blue linen curtain was an obstacle. It was a huge no trespassing sign keeping men away from God, reminding men of the holiness of God. But now, don't you see? This, this symbolism doesn't have to be explained to you, does it? By Jesus Christ, by his atonement in blood once and for all, the symbolic barrier comes down. And now it's no longer God saying, stay away, keep back, don't dare touch the foot of the mountain. Now 
it's come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's Hebrews 10.19 that applies here. When the author wrote, brothers, now we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, that is, through his body. Don't you see? The, the whole superstructure of the Old Testament rituals and temple and all of those things, which had their place, they had their time, but now there's no need of it anymore. Don't let anybody tell you we're going to rebuild that temple in some future age and, and come to God that way again. That's nonsense. It has been fulfilled. And it's only a matter of, year, of some years here after this in 70 A.D. that the whole thing wouldn't even exist anymore. The death of Jesus Christ tore that barrier keeping you from God. Tore it open from top to bottom to tell you that God is approachable by the opening he made through the death of his son. And he now invites people from every nation and every tribe who come by faith in that Son to approach Him, the Father, looking to Christ in faith. Thirdly, in this collection of miracles around the cross, we're told another one in verse 51 to 53 about broken tombs and risen saints. Now, Matthew's the only one who reports this of the four Gospels. He tells us there was an earthquake right after the death of Jesus, That isn't so hard to believe, by the way, because Jerusalem stands on a major geological fault. If you would look at a a map, uh, a topographical map of the Near East, you can actually, with the right kind of map, see that from there in Palestine right on down into the Great Rift Valley of Africa, it's like there's a slash in the earth, and it's a big, big geological fault. There are earthquakes there. But Matthew says the tombs were disturbed, and and now you have to be careful in understanding what he says here. He says that these tombs were somehow disturbed, but that later on, after the resurrection of Jesus, there was seen in Jerusalem believers who were known to be dead. Evidently, they rose. They were given resurrection bodies as a sign, as a miraculous sign. Now, let me tell you, this particular verse, and the fact that only Matthew reports it, is regarded by liberal critics of the New Testament as a foolish thing. They just dismiss it. They say, oh, somebody just put that in. Well, Matthew reports it. It's a part of the earliest manuscripts of Matthew. It isn't an insert. And I just have to say to you that when it comes to biblical miracles, you're in for a penny and in for a pound. If the Scripture reports it as history, it happened. And you do notice, though, that these dead believers, if you would understand, I believe, what's being said here, they didn't rise immediately at the hour Jesus died. It says after he rose, they were seen in Jerusalem. It seems that their actual resurrections followed the resurrection of Christ, and that's as it should be. For certainly we know that because he lives, we also are going to live. And we get the message. It's not a hard message to understand that the monumental death and resurrection of Jesus has a consequence of the resurrection of all people who belong to him, including those of the past, even before he died. 
One man calls this a preview of coming attractions. I like that. Here he says, it's God's firm pledge to us that we shall not remain imprisoned in a grave. This tells us that no matter what happens to our physical bodies, let them be cremated, let them be destroyed in war, it doesn't matter. Christ will raise those who belong to him, and they will be seen in bodies that are elsewhere described in the Scriptures as being like to his own glorious body. What does that mean? It's pretty tantalizing. It means healthy. It means ageless. I like that part. It means imperishable. It means recognizable. People knew the Lord in his risen body. They didn't say, well, you know, at first they were startled, but, but after it was explained, they, oh, yes, it is Jesus. I can't speak for you, but I'll take the 21-year-old version of my body in resurrection if they're allowing you to choose. A preview of coming attractions. The resurrection of the saints of Christ is a truth made possible by his death and his own resurrection. The split veil here tells us the barrier of sin is removed, and these risen saints tell us that even death is disturbed and is changed by the death of Jesus. Now, fourth and finally, there's a miracle here in the setting around the central gemstone of the death of Jesus And you might say, well, this one's an action by a man. Why do you call it a miracle? But it is a miracle because it requires the work of the Spirit of God for this action of human beings ever to take place. I'm speaking about this birth cry of an unlikely convert. Roman centurion, tough guy. Leader of a hundred Roman soldiers. You don't get that position without excelling in knowing how to lead men in battle, to give hard orders, to do things that lead to the suffering of others. We would assume that this man had been present in the judgment hall of Pilate. He had taken over and he had seen Jesus scourged. He even gave the order for it. He was there when his men made a mockery out of Jesus and put the crown of thorns on him and laughed at him and spit on him and struck him in the face. He heard every word Jesus spoke from the cross. Nobody was closer to the action than this guy. And yet verse 54 says the result of this battle-hardened soldier and those with him when everything had taken place. Jesus had said all the things he said The darkness came. The earthquake came. What was his reaction? He was terrified. Crucifixions just weren't supposed to go like this one did. And none ever had. And we have it declared in several of the Gospels that this man said, surely this man was the Son of God. Is that amazing or what? He was a Gentile. He didn't have a lot of Old Testament theology. He probably had almost no theology. All he had was the knowledge of what his eyes had seen. And and what he professed was crude and it was uninformed, and yet he knew what he knew. And he professed enough 
that the implication of the Scripture is clear that here was a Christian profession of faith, the first trophy of God's grace following the death of his son, was a Gentile, a soldier, a man with blood on his hands. The blood of Jesus was in effect on his hands. He was in charge. But what a wonderful message it gives that this man stepped through that torn curtain. This man embraced the only true father by his faith and profession in the only Son of God. Yes, he professed out of fear. I'm interested. I hear many, many testimonies as I listen to new members, hundreds of them now in this church. And and many times people will tell me their story of faith, especially if they came to Christ as a fairly young child. I've had people say, well, yes, I heard a sermon that really scared me about hell, and I didn't want to go to hell, so I took Jesus as my Savior. Now, some of you can identify with that. And you know, fear, fear should not be the only reason that we turn to God and, and receive Christ, but it's not a, a wrong motive or not even a bad motive to at least put us in the position to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We'll learn better motives as we go along. We'll learn to love him, and we'll learn more positive things about him. But if it is only fear and trembling and awe that causes us to say, surely this Jesus called Christ is unlike any person I've ever known about or heard about in all of history. Surely he is the Son of God. That is a right profession. That is a Christian profession. So today as we close, I would have you realize that the doctrine of the cross, while it's foolishness to men, Paul said in 1 Corinthians It's the glory of God. It's the power of God, not not the weakness. It looks like weakness, doesn't it? Look at this God. Why doesn't he come and save him? All those things they shouted. They were basically saying, the God you worship is weak because he doesn't save you. The Scripture shows us when we put the whole story together that the God and Father of Jesus Christ is strong because he can go right into the den of Satan himself and right into the deepest darkness and right into the anger and enmity of the worst of men and win a victory. That's why this God gets glory here. The cross is glorious because God is working out his eternal designs, lining up one miracle after another in the midst of the worst things that men can do. And as we see all these miracles and have considered them today, one man commenting on this said, why there's so many wonders here, it's like we're living in wonderland. Well, Christians do live to learn, do learn that they exist in God's wonderland. As we see him put together miracles, none greater than the miracle of new birth in a hard and resistant and antagonistic heart and mind of any man or woman who comes to say, surely this was the Son of God. I believe darkness covered the world, or at least a large portion of it on that historic day, 
dreadful darkness that should tell us how black was the sin that Jesus carried for us. Those who live in that darkness and who die in it unrelieved go out from this life into final darkness. But that isn't necessary. Not for you. Jesus Christ calls millions, 1 Peter 2 says, out of darkness into his wonderful light. In Christ, crucified and risen is the light of the world. And John said those who trust in him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Thanks be to God for this wonder of his Son offered up for us. Father, may we never stop being amazed. May we never stop trembling a bit with that soldier at the way in which you brought together events of anger and terror and violence and signs in the heavens and the earth to accomplish this at the very crossroads of history. Seal to us a great praise and gratitude for Christ. May that cry of the centurion be the cry of every voice here. Surely this was the Son of God. Amen.